Nation, authors, coaches, speakers. Three, two, one. Amplify your mission. Access training. AYMission.com. And here is your host. He's a best selling author, TEDx speaker, and was even named one of the top 10 dads in podcasting by Podcast Magazine. Please help me welcome to the stage, Adam Lewis Walker. Okay, this week we're going to be diving into how to be a bit of an interviewing legend, how to get access to big name celebrities, and how to just smash it. We've got my roommate. I mean, that's not the, the top of his eclairs. We've got Chris Van Vliet on the line. He's a four-time Emmy award-winning TV host, entertainment reporter, YouTuber based in Los Angeles. He's got a podcast as well. He's traveled the world reporting from events like the Oscars, Grammys, and the Cannes Film Festival. He has interviewed huge stars. The Rock has given him the finger. They're, they're like bros. Um, he's, he's interviewed Tom Cruise, Will Smith. The list goes on. I could do a huge bio. I'll put it in the show notes. Chris, are you ready to amplify your mission today? Let's do this thing. So good to see you, man. You too. So, I mean, is there anything you'd like to add or highlight? Something I've missed out. I mean, you've done a lot. We're going to dig into it. But is there any, what are you all about at the moment? I feel like we need to expand on this roommate thing. Like it was, <laughs> we were, we were <laughs> like, at an amazing I event. That, I want that scrapped. I want that cut from the interview. I've got a <laughs> reputation to create. <laughs> we were at an amazing event put on by our friend Justin Shank called the Growth Now Summit uh, Live. And... It was one of those things where it's like, you know, you're barely spending any time in the hotel room. So Justin was like, hey, would you guys want to split a room? We're like, sure. And then we hit it off. It was amazing. And here we are now. Yeah. No, I like it when like hosts or like friends know that because they're like, okay, I know this guy. I kind of get his vibe. I know this guy. They would like each other or like, yeah. you know, it's, it's on, it was on Justin's head. But yeah, it all worked out. It was like uh, matchmaking. Too brief. Uh, we didn't have a proper, well, we did yoga in the morning. That was like a group session, but I would like to done more. And I know I'm going to come onto your podcast in person. You do things to another level, I feel. You know, you obviously four-time Emmy Award win. When you record a podcast, it's in a full-on TV type studio. So tell us a little bit about the origins, because any interview would be like, yeah, I wouldn't mind being, having a couple of Emmys for that. I wouldn't mind interviewing <laughs> The Rock 10 times. I would, that sounds cool. I don't know if they're going to come on my podcast. Or how does that happen? So talk to us about your origins. Where are you originally from? What did you want to do growing up? I'm, I, I'm not going to assume. And uh, yeah, just tell us about the A to B. So the origin, the origin story begins just outside of Toronto. So like you, I am not native to uh, America. I moved here. I also have a green card, just like you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it started just outside of Toronto, a town called Pickering, Ontario. And I was always really passionate about broadcasting, like really looked up to people that were on the radio and television. That was the kind of pie in the sky, like mm. dream. But that seems like such a long shot when, I mean, I, I became passionate about broadcasting when I was four years old. Wow. I had a Fisher Price tape recorder and I would like pretend to be the radio you know, DJs that I heard. But it seems like such a long shot to want to actually be on TV, especially in Canada where there's not nearly as many big cities. There's not nearly as many TV channels, TV stations, but that was always something I wanted to do. And kind of fast forward to high school, I took a communication studies class where we actually made television like programs. Like we had a TV studio inside my high school and that was kind of what changed it for me. And then I, yeah. I did the morning announcements at my high school and just always loved being able to elicit a response. Like when I had a microphone in my hand, I loved being able to elicit a response. 
from people. And yeah. that was kind of the, the where the journey began. I'd studied communication studies in college. And while that was great, I didn't feel like it was really getting me like ready that I would I was going to graduate one day and start work the next day. So I kind of like in my senior year took that into my own, like that was my own responsibility. I had a day, Adam, where I woke up in my senior year and I had the best time at college. I was living with four of my best friends. We had such a great time. You know, we, I, I, I always joke that I majored in drinking and majored in drinking beer. <laughs> well, that's what we, in England, we uh, call it, I got a two, two is the level of my degree and they call it the drinker's degree. I was at that's a top a... sports university. So we had that balance, but yeah, I had a good yeah, that, time. I wouldn't. The, right. To... And then as the, as my senior year was beginning, I had a moment where I went, oh my gosh, when we graduate at the end of this year in seven months, eight months, we're going to have to go work for the rest of our lives. Yeah. And it's not like a 10 a.m. class was like sometimes too early for me to go to. So I decided in that exact moment, I'm like, if I'm going to have to go work for the rest of my life, I don't want to be one of those people that hates their job. I, I don't want to be one of those people who can't enjoy Sunday because Monday's the next day. And that was when I reached out to every radio station and every TV station in my college town and just basically said, hey, can I just come in and see how it's done in the real world? Can I come in and volunteer? And that's what really got the ball rolling. One radio station brought me in. I was a volunteer there, handed out things on their street team. Another TV station was run strictly by volunteers. And I went in and did everything behind the scenes. I ran cameras, VTR, audio as a floor director. And then this other radio station said, well, we don't really take on volunteers, but how would you like a job? And oh, that, so that really that changed my life because I was able to get the experience of going to school and the education there, but the real world experience that you can't put a dollar value on. Awesome. I love the hustle and, and also listening to your origins. And when I say I didn't want to assume, this is what it felt like. And this is a, definitely a compliment. When you see like these sports stars or someone who's just excelling in their field and you feel like, oh, they must have done that since there's four years old. I had that tunnel vision, like, you know, like a Tiger Woods or a Kobe Bryant. And it, and it seemed like that. And other people have, you know, done uh, all sorts. And then they kind of fell into something. And but it came across that this is, you know, like, okay, this is a serious profession. You know, you take this very seriously. And you've been on this mission for quite some time. Um, and that's how it came across. So that, that definitely matches up to what we see today. So fast forward a little bit. Still this very competitive uh, environment. Now, Philin, how do you get to, you know, interview The Rock 10 times? And it's a real interesting phase of your life now where you've obviously you've been, you know, working for companies and having that access. And then you've kind of you've gone more entrepreneurial now, but still keeping that access, which is now we spoke about in the room. And that was fascinating to me. But yes, yeah, so talk to us about that kind of progression from, right, this is your job now, you're in it, and then making the, the, the jumps and getting to the sort of access to these kind of people and the Oscars, the Grammys and things like that. Sure. Just getting the first job was, I think, like the first big, big barrier. So that was like, I, I had all that experience that I was just talking about, like volunteering in my final year. And then as I was about to graduate, I was like, well, I need an internship because an internship will then hopefully lead to a job because I can show them like what I can do. And I had to, I, I reached out to all these places, didn't hear back from anybody. There was a small TV station in Peterborough, Ontario, about an hour from my hometown. And I had no plans to apply there. I had no plans to, I hadn't even been to that town in like 10 years. And I scoured the internet. I found the general manager's email address and I sent him a cold email and said, hey, I'm going to be in town. 
in two weeks, spring break, I'd love to come in and talk to you about a possible internship. He wrote me back and said, well, we don't usually do that, but since you're going to be in town, sure, come on by. Total lie. Yeah. Had no plans to go there. <laughs> now I was going there. That uh, really paid off because he ended up giving me an internship. I was working my old high school job at the mall, at the pet store in the fish department, scooping dead fish and like bagging up goldfish for people to pay for the gas to drive to my internship. That's how it really began. The internship, long story short, turned into a job and I was all of a sudden a news reporter and a news anchor, but you're at a small station. So you're doing everything, writing, shooting, reporting, great, anchoring the news yeah. on the weekend. Yeah. And that's kind of where it really began. And I got that like, like thrown to the wolves completely. Like it's, it's you either, you know, you either do it or you don't. Six o'clock is when the news starts. And if you're not ready to go at six o'clock, you know, it doesn't work. And that, that would actually really instill a lot into me. That idea that like working towards a deadline, yeah, you know, every single day. But I kind of realized at 22, I didn't want to be a news reporter for the rest of my life. There was an opening for MTV2 Canada on the West Coast, Vancouver. Kind of did the same thing. I was kind of like, you know, I found the name of the person that was doing the hiring, called them at their desk. And I was like, hey, I'm going to be in Vancouver next week. And they're like, well, <laughs> if you're going to be here, sure, come on by. <laughs> we see a theme here, but... There's Seriously, people could you know pay attention to this. Is it never more people need to lap. do this? Yeah. Oh my gosh, never. More people need to do this. Like take chances. Like how many people do you think called the TV station? I'm gonna guess one. <laughs> Looking at them, <laughs> you're like this guy. Yeah. yeah. So that that was where it really began with a lot of the stuff that you were talking about. That's where I became an entertainment reporter. Uh, I was hosting an amazing show. They're kind of like the Canadian version of TRL, like yeah. kind of like the West Coast Canadian version of that. It's called Nine Six Nine. And that's where I started interviewing musicians and a lot of actors and were celebrities. Those, were those your first interviews as well? Or had you done those a little the, bit of that when you was reporting? I mean, when you're reporting, you're mostly interviewing like the mayor and yeah. you know the local county health official and stuff like that. Yeah. These were my first celebrity interviews and I loved it. And I, I loved like being able to like, I was, I've always been inspired by seeing someone who's doing the thing that I want to do or just doing something like at yeah. a great level. And going, okay, well, how'd you get there? Like, you don't just snap your fingers and become Kobe Bryant yeah. or Oprah Winfrey. You know, there's a process along the way, and that's what was always really intriguing to me. Going through that, what was the what was the kind of goal pinnacle? Were, were you thinking, right, I want to go and you know interview because I know you're a big wrestling fan, so I I'll use the Rock because it's a very easy one to kind of sure. um, know, even if you're not into wrestling. Where was the kind of the, the the aspirations? Was it to interview someone like The Rock? Was it to go to the Oscars? Or was that, you know, just to get to the highest level in, in your profession, really? It was to host a TV show. I loved being able to turn on the TV. And we're talking mid-2000s here. Yeah. Like, I loved turning on the TV. And, like, I was so envious of Roger Lodge, who hosted that show Blind Date. Oh, okay. Or, like, yeah. Dean Cain hosted Ripley's Believe It or Not. Joe Rogan hosted Fear Factor. Yep. Uh, a guy named Ryan Seacrest was hosting this new show called, well, American Idol was the one that made him famous, but I loved watching him on this show called The Ultimate Revenge. So that oh, was the I never goal saw that me. one. Yeah. No, terrible, terrible. Nobody <laughs> saw that show. But that was the goal for me. The goal was to do something like that. And then the celebrity interviews just kind of came about. And like you said, I was a wrestling fan. I was equally as passionate about wrestling as I was about broadcasting and I actually wanted to be a pro wrestler. I went to wrestling school when I was 20. So like, wow. 
Yeah. Did you ever have any thoughts of what would be your wrestling name? Oh, uh, of course. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I was a, so I was a backyard wrestler. That was a really big thing in like the late nineties, early two thousands, yeah. you laid some mats or mattresses in your backyard and jump off of various things and, you know, pretend you were wrestling. Well, you were wrestling, yeah. but pretend like you actually knew what you were doing. <laughs> so I did that. I was Chris Sharp was my name. Sharp talking, sharp walking, sharp dressing. <laughs> and it. when I was 20, I went to wrestling school between my sophomore and junior year uh, in the summer. And I, I was doing it. I learned, I literally was like running the ropes, learning the ropes, yeah. learning how to like fall, do all that stuff. And then I kind of had this cross, crossroads where I'm like, all right, do I continue with wrestling school or do I continue with school school? Yeah. And that was kind of the fork in the road. And the really cool thing about the path that I chose, which was continuing my communication studies degree, going into broadcasting, I was able to then dip my toe back yeah. into the world of wrestling. Like I was interviewing, like I said, athletes and actors and celebrities, but then every once in a while, WWE would come to town for a show. And I remember the first time this happened, I said to my boss, like, could I interview a wrestler? Like, is that a thing we could do? She's like, yeah, of course. We've done that before. I'm like, oh my gosh. I'm going to get paid to talk to a wrestler. So that's kind of where it began. It was, it was, I, I never went into this with the intention of, I want to interview a bunch of wrestlers, which it's interesting because that's what my YouTube channel now, 15 years later has really turned into a lot of, yeah. it was mostly just, I had the access to the people who were performing at the very top of whatever it was that they did, wrestlers included. And I was just like, well, if I have access to them, I'm not going to say no. And then, you know, fast forward many years later, while I was interviewing a lot of the people that you mentioned, like Tom Cruise or Hugh Jackman or um, Samuel L. Jackson or whomever it might be, again, wrestling would come to town and they would say, yeah, of course, we'll, we want to do an interview with the TV station. And that's where I would get to I say, get those interviews. You become in. the guy as well, because you can't fake that kind of that insider knowledge and excitement. And what I love about, you know, in terms of niching and, and like moving on to the entrepreneur world. You know, great interviewer, you know, four-time Emmy Award winning, and then big wrestling fan. The wrestling people are just going to, because they can tell, like in any sport, if you've got someone on there who's just a good interviewer, uh, but it's not their passion, if, if it's a sport or, you know, a certain type of music, you can tell they don't have the kind of like background knowledge. Like when you're interviewing yeah. a wrestler, obviously you can bring out a reference from probably like 10, 20 years ago or a match or this or that. And you obviously genuinely like it a lot. So I want to ask as well about, some of the 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 biggest bumps in the road or where you think oh you just had a bad day at the office and i know a couple of like the interview stuff the stuff that you know helps your youtube channel go more viral now as well i know some of the interviews but was there a time where a real struggle like adversity where you just thought oh crap is this is this is this for me or is this not going to work out because listening to the you know the story it all seems you know very much like you're just on a mission and you're just so focused but was there times when you ever had those huge doubts or just had a very rough day, week or period. So that job, MTV2 Canada, which was in Vancouver, when I got that job, I packed up my car, drove out there and started basically a new life on the other side of the country. And it was a 47 hour drive in my 1995 Toyota Corolla. And I got out there and like day two, I was like spending the day with a, a famous rapper and like then interviewing a bunch of celebrities after that there was a big media conglomerate that ended up buying the network that our show was on and this merger happened and we were like oh my god we're gonna get a new studio in a new building this is amazing and what actually happened was they canceled our show 
they were looking for a way to like trim some budgets and they looked at our entire division and went, yeah, we're just going to cut that whole thing. So it went from like the dream of hosting this amazing show with all this access and all these amazing interviews that we were getting to all of a sudden, like literally I went to work, I was working at the computer. My boss came in and said, Hey, everybody stop what you're doing. Yeah. The, the show just got canceled. And I was like, Oh, oh. so how huge long were you in that till until it happened? Like how long have you been doing One it? year. I was there oh. for one year. So just starting to kind of get my footing and I was two and a half years into my broadcasting career. So I felt like I was just finally starting to find my voice and then boom, just like that, it was taken away. So it's, it was difficult because for two different reasons, one, that felt like the dream job taken away. No other option at that point to like, just kind of slide into another department or anything. Number two, I was now 3000 miles away from home and had to make a decision. Do I put down roots in Vancouver where I really didn't know a lot of people and try to find another job? Or did I drive back, move in with my parents in Ontario and Toronto and try to find a job there? And that's what I ended up deciding to do because Toronto is just such a big city for broadcasting, yeah. but I was unemployed for seven months. So a huge, huge bump in the road. But with that said, it led me to where I am now because I would be like, and be between me and one other person for a job or me and two other people to host this huge national show. And they would go with someone else because maybe they had a little bit more experience or they'd go with someone else because maybe uh, viewers recognize them a little bit more. And I was getting so close and not getting any of these jobs. And finally, I said, if I can't get a job in my own country, I'm going to look elsewhere. And that's when I got an agent in the US that really started to get the wheels turning for where I am now, which led to a job in, it was first Cleveland. I was the CBS entertainment reporter in Cleveland. Then it was Miami. And now I live in Los Angeles. But it's funny to think back on it now, Adam, that if it wasn't for me losing that job and being unemployed for seven months, none of these other things would have lined up. 100%. Talking about um, adversity, now I want to kind of line it up a bit. In some of your interviews, and I think it's Harrison Ford, uh, that memory springs to mind. Harrison Ford, another lady of... of, of Anne Hathaway. That's the one. And uh, I feel like she's got a bit of a reputation. She could, you know, be quite feisty on occasion. But um, talk to us about moments in interviews or where where it did go wrong. And, and they were quite humorous ones. And pl- feel free to tell us the story or the listener's story. Uh, but one where, has it ever gone really badly? As in like... you. Because I've seen you've recovered well and like you've had moments that are definitely entertaining. But when's a time when it, you know, either very close to going badly or does go badly in these interviews? I've always had this mentality of like, let's just swing for the fences. This isn't live. If it doesn't go well, we just don't need to air it. And that actually took me a while to figure out that like, if you ask a question in a wrong way or you ask it and like you could have phrased it better, it doesn't need to air. Just that's it the end of it, you know, you can edit it out. So the Harrison Ford one that you bring up is a great example. Indiana Jones 4 had just come out, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Spoiler alert for everybody, the movie came out a very long time ago, but spoiler alert, the Crystal Skulls are aliens or interdimensional beings. Yeah, and you're probably having a reaction while you hear that if you didn't know that, like, oh dear. (laughs) And it it was widely like, Indiana Jones fans widely kind of discredited and went, oh man, I can't believe that they went in that direction. So I interviewed him years later for a movie called Extraordinary Measures. 
And I was just like, I've got Harrison Ford here. We were all talking about how terrible Indiana Jones 4 was. So I was like, you know, do you think he'll ever do an Indiana Jones 5? He gives me this, you know, kind of long answer. I don't know, it took us 18 years to do this one. If we do this one, it'd be so nice. And whatever George Lucas says, uh, you know, that's how Harrison Ford talks. And then seemed you know, quite he, serious at the time as well, just to give the, the tone. Of the oh, and Harrison Ford is very serious. Yeah, and he can go one way or the other, I feel, as well. <laughs> and this video is on YouTube if you want to check it out. Yeah. And then I, you know, the 25-year-old me goes, well, if you do another one, can you promise me there won't be aliens? And he looks around the room and I'm like, oh my God, I'm never doing another interview again. How long was that pause? Because it felt like a, In, it felt it, a long time. <laughs> In real life, probably three seconds. It felt about like three hours. Yeah. He's looking around. I think he's trying to figure out what to say. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm never doing another interview again. And he looks at me and he leans in and he goes, just between you and me, I think I can. And I'm like, oh my God. Woo. Thank you, Harrison. Yeah. So he made it a fun moment. And I'm sure that, you know, that happened in like 2009. Yeah. I'm sure that if that happened now, that would have been a much bigger, more viral moment. But it was interesting, you know, being being there now. And I watched the video back and I'm like, feels like I I'm feel anxious just watching it just for yeah. you. For anyone, it's just this. But the moral of the story there is swing for the fences, because the worst thing that someone can say, and this isn't just in a celebrity interview or a podcast interview, the worst thing someone can say is no. And I think that too often people come into a situation, they go, well, I could, I could never, whether that's business or that's in their personal life, I could never ask this person out, or I could never make this business proposal. Like the, the absolute worst thing that could happen is they just say no, and that's it. But the best thing that could happen is anything else. So I think that it's just, just there's a lesson to be learned here that it's so important to just not even swing for the fences, just swing just have it at bat and i think a lot of people sometimes don't have that at bat yeah and i think what's uh also what i respected about that and i think a lot of people it, everyone's probably thinking it and it was very authentic it's not like you loved the fact that there was aliens in the movie and you're just trying to be annoying or trying to wind him up like it's like everyone's kind of feeling it it's like the unspoken thing and it's just a you know a genuine light-hearted question so be authentic as well and obviously you've lent into that with the wrestling and some of the questions you you ask, what do you think wins you when you're in that environment? You've got the stage, you've got the opportunity, wins you an Emmy. What takes an interview to where well, you just kind of touched on a lot of pieces there, but takes it to the next level? Because obviously you've been doing this a long time. This is your, you know, this is your path, this is your career, your craft. What things are you working on or trying to, you know, we probably don't notice it and we say, oh, that's a great interview. And you probably like a little thing like, oh, I, I need to tighten that up or I need to tweak that or this is what i'm looking to get better at, and you know ultimately you've you've won awards for it i remember dick clark saying that if you think you can do my job then i'm doing it right like if if i make it look easy that means i'm doing it right and i think the biggest thing with an interview in particular is it built it starts with building rapport and that's from the second you walk into the room with the second the zoom window pops up i think that too often people wait for that red light to turn on the you know this meeting is being recorded. Yeah, they're all I think moody, that's and then just turn it on. <laughs> right. Like... And I think especially if you're meeting someone for the first time, like the first thing they should see when that Zoom window pops up or they walk in your door, or you walk in their door is they should see who the true authentic you mm. is. And I think that too many people kind of hide that and that's your first impression. 
And you only get, you know, this cliche as it is, you only get one chance to make a first impression. So I think it begins there. And in terms of doing an interview, it also begins with like being respectful and like lining up your questions in a proper order. You know, if there is a heavy hitting question, don't start with that unless it's like, <laughs> you know, unless that's something you've you've previously talked about. But like, if there's some very newsworthy or, or touchy subject, don't start with that. So, uh, you know, I think it's so important to realize that the quality of your life is the quality of the questions that you ask. And that's not just in an interviewing setting, that's in your life. And the ask better questions and you'll get better answers. And you could have two questions that are very similar in their path, raised in two completely different ways, get you two drastically dis different answers. So on, on that note, I was going to say, I want to tee you up for the experience and talking about asking better questions, get better answers and the nature of just hyper short times and these sort of high level celebrities where you get might get one question and you might yeah. travel around the world to do it. The Tom Cruise incident with a, a colleague of yours, I believe, where that, you know, you've come all that way, traveled probably, I think it's somewhere like London to, and you get one question with Tom Cruise and that that's it. I mean, talk to us about that and, and that incident. Yeah, we flew halfway around the world. This was the Mission Impossible world premiere in Paris. And Tom's publicist was kind of coming around as he was you know, five, 10 minutes away from the interview. The way a red carpet works is they show up, you, you, know, you see the cameras flashing, they sign the autographs, and then they go to the, they call it a press line. And it's kind of like this interview, two feet over another interview, and then they kind of work their way down this press line. So Tom's publicist came up and said, it's, uh, we only have time for one question, just one question. We're like, okay, yeah, great. One question. So you you think about what's your best question? What's going to listen to get the that best sound response? Bite. You want to get that. You, you know, need so that, you right? That. You've yeah. traveled all around the world for this. So what is going to elicit the best soundbite? I ended up asking him something about like his legacy and like, does he choose roles based on like how we're going to remember him and his legacy? And he gave me this great response about like, no, I just make movies that are interesting to me. And I don't know if everybody knows this. Tom Cruise watches a new movie every day. He watches it. Yeah. He just oh. so passionate. You want to talk about passion. Yeah. He's passionate. But my one friend, Chris, who is based in Denver, Colorado, asked him, I don't remember the exact wording of the question, but asked him something along the lines of like, hey, Tom, do you like the skiing in Colorado? Hoping that he could get like, you know, a hometown answer. And Tom looks at him and goes, I love it. And then walked away. And that was the whole thing. That was his one question. Oh man, painful, painful. <laughs> so it it was a it was a <laughs> a lesson learned very loud and clear yes. that to to make the most of your time as well. Sure. And now coming up to sort of the the last few years, so having the through the studios and stuff, having access and you know and expenses to go and interview these great celebrities and you know people doing very well in the world and their profession. Talk to us about you know, your own YouTube and your podcast and stepping away from that, that, that guaranteed access ultimately, but doing your own thing and how tough that was both mentally to make that jump and the different challenges that you have now. Broadcasting's just shifted so much, even in the time that I've been in it. So I started in television in 2005 before YouTube, Facebook wasn't even really a thing. MySpace was really the only social media it's shifted so much. Like back then, you turned on the TV and you channel surfed. Now you open up YouTube and you type in the literal specific thing that you want to see. Like you don't type in Britney Spears music. I don't know why I chose that as an example, but 
you Secret can choose. Fan, I think there we go. <laughs> why, why not? You can choose an actual concert and a year in a specific city singing a specific song, which we we never had that specific specificity before that we have now. Wow, that's what a word. Yeah, I'm not going to. So, I wasn't going to try and help you out there. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't say either. <laughs> So it shifted a lot for me where I was putting these long form interviews on my YouTube channel because I kind of saw the way that television was. Unless you were tuned into Channel 19 on that Wednesday at exactly 4.17 p.m., you never saw the interview I did with Morgan Freeman or you never saw whatever it happened to be. So I was just taking those raw interviews and putting them on my YouTube channel. And there were a lot of times when it was getting way more views, millions more views on YouTube than it was on the TV station. Mm. And I was kind of seeing the writing on the wall that this was kind of how it was starting to shift. So I then started going out of my way. If if I had access to somebody through working at the TV station, I would go out and maybe I'd drive half an hour or an hour or five hours in some mm. cases to do an interview with somebody. I would do it. All I needed them to say was, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And I'd be like, yeah, that's all I need. I'll take it from here. And I started to see that the more time and effort that I started to put into the YouTube channel and the podcast and creating that content, the more that was really starting to grow. And in 2019, I kind of had this moment where I realized, all right, did I move to the United States to be a local news person? Or do I, did I move here to like tell people stories and create content? And I was already doing that through my YouTube channel with the free time that I had from my TV job, what would happen if I were to put all my time into that? Thought about it for a long time and decided, you know what? There's no better time than now. And I dove in and started creating as much content as I could. I thought that was a lot of content three years ago. I look at it now and I'm posting three TikToks a day and three or four YouTube videos a day. And yeah, I'm just you're realizing- you're on it. I well, the more you I, can put out, yeah. the, the more of a chance there is for somebody to see your stuff. Absolutely awesome. and. You've with your podcast studio, I suppose, as well. What made you choose that you have a great setup in Vegas as opposed to like home podcast? Or was it, you know, talk to us about that and um, and how you get access to celebrities now as well? Well, I still do some remotely, like we're doing yeah. right now, yeah. but nothing beats being able to do an interview in person. 100%. <laughs> 100%. Like being able to shake someone's hand and hug them and feel their energy, look them directly in the eyes, nothing beats that. So when I started my podcast, there was a podcast network called Blue Wire that brought me in under their umbrellas. So I'm on the Blue Wire podcast network. And they built out this beautiful, incredible, unbelievable podcast studio inside the Wynn Hotel. So I go to Vegas like every two or three weeks and we record as many episodes as we can there. And it's just, there's something about being in that studio and something about being able to like look someone in the yeah, eye yeah, when you're having the conversation that makes it so much better. Awesome. And just starting to wrap it up as well. If you had the world stage, I mean, you've you've had it almost many times. Um, you had the world's attention for 10 minutes to give, say, a TEDx style talk or a message on a billboard. What would be the kind of the idea or the concept you'd want to share? I mean, you and I have been going back and forth about this for so long. And I think that you and I need to dig a little bit deeper because I it, it is a bucket list item for me to do a TEDx talk. Yeah. So you and I need to figure out what the topic would be. And I feel like it has something to do with the asking better questions. Yeah. You know, I've got the experience in my career of doing that, but there's so many questions you're asking in your everyday life. Yeah. And when we saw each other at the Growth Now Summit Live, I talked about how 
when you're a kid, everybody asks you the same question. What do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to be? And then you quote unquote grow up and that immediately shifts from what do you want to be to what do you do? And then you're defined by the thing that you do. And for so many people, it's not even a thing they enjoy doing. Yeah. And in that moment, I would say like, what's the questions you're starting to ask yourself? And a big question is like, how did you get to where you're at? When did you get off the path that you were on and you started like on someone else's path? So I think there's something there and I got to, with your help, flesh this out a little bit more. But I think if it was just a straight up billboard and that's Tim Ferriss asked this question in his podcast all the time. And I'm like, always like, oh man, what would it be? I don't know. Like, what would it be? But I think it's something along the lines of like, you can do more than you think you can. And I think that too many people limit themselves and like box themselves into like the limiting beliefs that they have for themselves. And it's just, you can do more than you can. I, I also, I say all the time, vague goals get vague results. And I think that ties into the other one. You know, the idea of like, I want to lose some weight this year. I want to grow my podcast a little bit this year. Like quantify it. Set some specific goals. 100%. Well, I mean, on that note as well, out of all the things you do, I know you're big on YouTube and you're doing some TikTok and obviously you do podcasting as well. What do you feel is um, one of the most, out of those, quantifying it, the most effective tools to amplify your mission at the moment and maybe which way do you see it going in, into the future and onwards you think is going to be a, a, a you know a real needle mover for you going forwards right now there's so much attention on youtube shorts so for anybody that has a youtube channel take the content that you have and start to chop it up into vertical video and put it out there and repurpose it and i think that that is so underutilized right now and undervalued there's so much attention on YouTube shorts right now, and there's not nearly as many people that are making those. So yeah. I would say that while that's hot right now, and maybe that will only be hot for the next six to 12 to 18 months, while that's hot, put as much time and effort as you can there. I have a clips channel where I just put the clips of my yeah, you got two full interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I have the main, main channel. I started it 11 years ago. It has 323,000 subscribers. Less than two years ago, I started a secondary channel where I just put like the clips and the best moments, most memorable moments from my YouTube uh, interviews. And I really started going heavy on the shorts this year. And I started the year with about 25,000 subscribers. And I thought, man, I could just double that this year. What a huge win to double the subscriber base there. I ended up getting doubling it in like two months because I was posting so many shorts, so many of these clips. And I hit 100,000 subscribers in like five months. Now we're at 130,000. So there's so much undervalued attention there and also in TikTok. And I know there's a lot of people that are like, why do I need TikTok? I already have Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and LinkedIn and Twitter. Trust me. Like TikTok right now is like, you could have five. Actually, I just started a, a, a TikTok account for a podcast that I'm working with, that I'm consulting with. They literally have five in, uh, TikTok followers. And the video I posted yesterday got 18,000 views. Wow. There is not another social media platform that allows Exactly. That. And like you say, that, that's, that's, there's going to be a timeline on that opportunity. But, it, you know, so t- listen to this. And that window's closing. If you got on TikTok in 2019, you'd have a million followers probably. Awesome. Mate, well, I know you've got a, another, you know, you've got to be away for something and our time has absolutely flown. What's the best way people can continue the conversation, follow up with you, steer us the best way There's some socials. Yeah. 
Hit us well, up. wherever you're listening to this, you can find my podcast called Insight with Chris Van Vliet. And then on all social media, it's just at Chris Van Vliet, V-A-N-V-L-I-E-T. So A-L-W and C-V-V. <laughs> Love it. And, and I'm just curious about this because it would be, you might assume, okay, you've interviewed maybe the person you really want to interview. Is there someone who's on your hit list that you haven't interviewed yet that is almost like your dream interview? Or have you, have you done them all? No, there's so many. There's so many. Like I had a very brief interview with Oprah. I'd love to have a longer conversation with her. But I think like someone like Elon Musk for an hour. Oh, yeah. Incredible. And I know that you're a big fan of his work. Uh, I'm talking about someone else here, but I would love a conversation with Christopher Nolan. Oh, yes. And so. I, I have to say as well, I can't believe we didn't cover it in the interview. The Rock gave gave you the finger on live TV. Go look that up on YouTube. It is beautiful. It's hilarious. I can't believe we didn't mention it naturally. And so I have to get that in there as well. So you've got to check that out. You get to the level where I think you've interviewed The Rock. Was it nine or 10 times? Nine. We're, you know, hoping to close in on 10 here. So yeah, he felt comfortable enough to flip you the bird on live TV. It was awesome. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Val, so good to see you. And thank you so much for having me on. And all right have a great week amplify your message and amplify your mission system shutdown three two one